All right. Well, if you got a Bible, you open your Bible to Joshua chapter 6. That's where we're at today. Going straight through it. Uh, in the uh, space next door right there, there's a bunch of bookshelves that are books for sale. And the bottom shelf, there's a bunch of free stuff. If you haven't uh, obtained a study guide yet for our study, uh, it's down there. It says the Lord's Army looks like that. And it's got uh, intro stuff, just kind of a lot of different pieces of information in that study that will help you as we go through this. Or if you've missed sermons, there's questions and, and things we use in our road groups that you can use uh, if you download them. Um, we're going to take a break at the end of November and do a, uh, a four-week Advent series. And over that 30 days, there's going to be another booklet coming out that's going to allow um, families to pastor their own homes through uh, the Advent. And there'll be a, something to do each day. And uh, we've never done that before, but Jim, being a uh, studly architect man, put it together. And it's going to be pretty awesome. And I'm really want him but don't want him to go to Mount Vernon, but it's going to be good. Um, so then we'll continue again with Joshua, so it's another, you know, into the spring, so you'll need that study guide if you don't have it yet. Um, you would think by uh, what you saw in Road Life, if you checked out Road Life with a social network and the discussion about last week's sermon, that that would be the most controversial thing we could actually talk about. Um, but no, the next seven chapters in Joshua actually present some of the most controversial material in the Bible, beginning with the Battle of Jericho, which uh, is more than just a Veggie Tales uh, little, you know, comic or comedic little story. Um, the Battle of Jericho is one of the strangest uh, and yet most familiar stories in the Bible. And even though many of us know kind of the basic details of it, probably uh, many of us from what we sang in Sunday school. It's unlikely that we've really uh, spent a lot of difficulties or time in the difficulties of, of chapter 6 and some of the things that are there. We kind of, uh, even some of the sermons that I've heard a lot on this passage kind of dance around some of the hard stuff and just like, yeah, walls, you know, what's your Jericho type of mentality? And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but we're going to do something a little bit different. And I know a lot of us are thinking, you know, wait, wait. Isn't it just, you know, Jericho, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down and what could be controversial? Well, uh, I'm talking about after the walls fell down. And the seventh ghost, you know, secret verse that we never uh, maybe sing where uh, God commands the entire city of Jericho to be uh, completely destroyed and including men and women and children and animals. Um, that verse that we tend to uh, read over and typically don't sing or teach our children. So we're going to sit on it. I don't want to avoid it. Uh, I think that's uh, wrong. We go straight through Scripture, and what we hit, we hit. And so we're going to sit on that, and I think it's good for us to do so. Um, those who are hostile towards God and those who uh, really don't like Christians love passages like this because they use them to make um, Christians squirm and then rally uh, whoever they can to their religion is responsible for every terrible thing that ever happened in the world team. And you can actually uh, do a little quick search on the internet for Joshua 6, and you would come up with all kinds of uh, websites and blogs and articles that uh, demonize God and Christianity and the Bible uh, based on this passage and, and one similar to it. And they typically end with a you know, crescendo of a statement, something like, you know, how can anyone with half a brain or half a heart worship a God like that? And so we're going to deal with that. And truth be told, I think that many of us, including myself 
as I just survey kind of my, my history of faith, if you will, probably uh, think or, or do exactly the same thing when we encounter something that's difficult, in particular, something that uh, we don't like about how God has revealed himself. And although we may not say it with our lips or write blogs about it, uh, we often say it in our hearts, and instead of worshiping the God of the Bible, we start worshiping uh, the God of our emotions or our own thoughts or our own experiences that, that feels better. Um, what's worse, I think, when challenged, and you, you probably will be if, if you spend any time in Joshua, when challenged, in particular by other people, we begin to apologize for God and try to defend God and Christians and the Bible and kind of try to change it around a little bit and remake God into an image that is more attractive to people. Um, and I'm not too concerned with that, quite frankly, about whether God of the Bible is attractive to people or not. Uh, I'm simply concerned with making sure we accurately teach who God of the Bible is and then let the Holy Spirit take care of the rest. Um, it is a difficult text, though. And we have to get to a place, or I have to get to a place, and I thought about this all week, or I am more fearful of God than I am of people's reactions to him. And so I'm not here to convince people to, um, to or that, I should say, God is worthy to be worshipped. Um, I think he is. I think the Bible declares that he is. But I simply am here to worship by proclaiming what the Bible says. That in and of itself is worship. Not here to defend, but simply to declare who he is and what he's done. And so I'm not going to try and stuff God into that little God-shaped box that you've made, uh, which we all do, and he just doesn't fit, because I think he's much bigger than that. And at the heart of, of this sermon and is simply a truth that you have to accept God as he has revealed himself. And if you don't, it's very unlikely that you will follow him in the way that he demands. That, this is, that's just it. Now, it's about, I guess, accepting God for being God and not remaking him into this, this more palpable image that uh, doesn't kill anyone and just loves everyone and lets you follow him the way that you want. That's not the God of the Bible. And so we're going to go with the God of the Bible because it's just a safer team to be on. Now, verse... Uh, the chapter begins, we'll just, uh, the end of chapter 5, last week when Chris introduced uh, kind of right before Jericho, the commander of the army reminds Joshua that uh, he's not alone, that he is not in charge, that uh, God is not on his team, that Joshua is on his. And this is God's war, not Joshua. The whole book of Joshua is God against everyone else. We have to remember that. It's not the Israelites against the sinners who are worse than them. Israelites pretty screwed up themselves. So this is God's war, not Joshua's. And so as Joshua hears the commander of the army, he doesn't question, he doesn't argue or debate. He simply humbles himself as we all should and worships. That should be our reaction to the God of the Bible. Now, as God commands, Joshua now, as we'll see in verse 1 of chapter 6, he attacks what is a fortress of Jericho. So we'll start in chapter 6, verse 1. It says, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its kings and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all of the men of war, going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark 
On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, you, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all of the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let armed men pass before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So we caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. And then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before him, <clears throat> and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. <clears throat> they had good lungs. And the second day, they marched around the city once and returned into the camp, and so they did for six days. Now, I have a, uh, a slideshow for the uh, Jericho. So you get a picture of Jericho. The city itself, um, it says Jericho walls, I think, on the, um, on the graphic. You see that? Uh, the city itself, press the space bar to go to the next one. Uh, you can actually, that's the city as it is today, big mound of dirt. Um, and it is uh, pretty large in terms of ancient times. Today we wouldn't consider it much big. Uh, it's, a, it's a strategic fortress that's positioned in the middle of the promised land, if you look at the map. And so you see Joshua is divided into northern, <clears throat> excuse me, and southern campaigns, much like happened in World War II where they wedge all kinds of things and then attack two two sides. Uh, the city is surrounded by a series of walls that, uh, this is a computer image that's uh, pretty daunting when we look at it. The outer wall was built on top of a retaining wall, and the wall itself was probably a total of about 40 feet high. And it was built on a pile of earth, as you saw, that, that kind of extended upward from there into this inner wall that was probably 20-ish feet high. And the city is, is locked, and it's shut up tight. They probably have been piling up supplies since the spies first came in. And so they can hang out for a long time, and it's unlikely that this little nomadic fighting force without really any uh, weapons of repute or experience in war would be able to do anything uh, apart from a miracle of God. Now, Joshua is given some very strange instructions, uh, but very specific instructions about how to take the city. So they're to circle it uh, one time a day for six days, and they're to walk in a particular order, they uh, probably uh, they have thousands of men, and they're just the warriors that will go along with the priests. So we'll begin with armed warriors in front, and then behind them will be the seven-piece band of seven trumpets that they are blowing continually. Then behind them will be the ark carried by the Levites, and then uh, a rear guard uh, of warriors. And so they will uh, go around this. The area itself is probably about seven acres, generally speaking, and so just under half a mile uh, estimates where they're walking around. So the number of warriors they had, they probably encircled the city completely. 
So it wasn't like a group just walking around like this. They just were, you know, rotating like a big wheel and make sure they all went around just one time. And when the walls actually fell and they say they all go straight in, the walls tumbled in such a way to make ramps pretty much. And so they all just walked in at the same time from all sides uh, at the same moment. Now, um, they would, again, walk around for, for once for six days. And on the seventh day, they would do it seven times. And then, um, having been silent for a week, minus the horns blowing, they would yell, and the walls would fall. Now, anyone would, you know, the instructions would make you giggle a little bit, uh, though we know the end of the story, so it doesn't. But there is no historical precedence for, for such a battle. There's no rationality behind this, and there's no military credibility whatsoever. Now, remember, Joshua was a general. He's fought battles before, um, and... You know, at some level, we kind of like, this is not really the number one military strategy that really any successful army anywhere before or after has ever uh, approached a city like this and, and taken the same tactic. And so as you see this, you begin to see that the only reason for Joshua or anyone else to believe that it's going to work is that it is the word of God. That it's God's word. That's it. There's nothing else. And it's incredible how often that's not enough for the majority of us, if we're honest. Now, there are many trials that I have found myself in, some minor irritations that may not irritate you, some devastating things for me that may not devastate you. We all have them. And there are, for me personally, there, when I'm in those particular trials, there are many that have not made me necessarily feel good. There are many that have not not made sense to me. And it is those times that I have been personally very tempted to stop marching, to stop following, and to just go, you know, God, you really do not care. And the truth is, sometimes all we have, or may I just say all I have, all I have is summarized in a very simple song that says, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Because a lot of times, sure don't feel like it. And so I hold on to that truth, and I think that that is honestly the core of faith. And Joshua commands these men, because that's what he's holding on to. God has said it. doesn't look like it's very wise, rational, crazy. But God has said it, so he commands them, and they start marching around the city. And I think we get a picture of what it looks like to actually follow Jesus. Now, I'm going to spend a little bit of time here. This is normally where people stop, but I'm going to spend some time here um, and talk about what kind of faith it is. And know that as I lay out this faith, as we, we get from the marching, I'm going to explain something to you that all of us suck at doing. So you're going to see this and go, yeah, that's what faith looks like, and then quickly realize that you don't do that. And that's why Jesus did it perfectly. Okay, So there is a, a reason why uh, Jesus had to live a perfect sinless life because he had to give us a faith that we don't have and can't create ourselves. So when I explain this, know that I'm, I'm setting, us up, setting us up for something we're not able to do. The first thing is that it is a foolish faith without question. The principles that God lays out here and Jesus' principles of, of living are very different than the world's principles. We try to pretend they're similar, but they're contrastly, starkly different. Walking with God looks different than walking with the world. Success is completely different. Suffering is completely different. Just 
Do you look at suffering and go, the world would say, suffering's not deserved, suffering's not intended, suffering should... That's not what Jesus' life's looked like. It makes us look at suffering completely different. Hope, different. Meaning, purpose, different. And quite frankly, most of the principles that Jesus, dare I say, all the principles that are laid out are quite foolish in the eyes of the world. Silly. That is why most people don't follow Jesus. That is why most people won't follow Jesus. Okay? Now, it doesn't take much faith, even for those whose, whose eyes have been opened, whose hearts have been changed, it doesn't take much faith to follow God when he asks you to do stuff that's culturally acceptable or popular or easy. That doesn't take much faith at all. And that does happen. But faith is required when following God's commands defy and maybe offend everything you think and feel and know. That's where faith comes in. And Jesus, if you look at his life and the kind of faith he gives us, he comes and he was completely rejected as a fool, a demon-possessed freak, so that I could be accepted and adopted as a son. There's a great song by Michael Card. If you ever get a chance to, you won't like the way it sounds, but the words are beautiful. It's called God's Own Fool. And it goes something like this, I believe. Seems I've imagined him all of my life as the wisest of all of mankind. But if God's holy wisdom is foolish to men, he must have seemed out of his mind. And it portrays this picture of God or Jesus played the fool so I didn't have to. Faith is foolish. These guys look foolish. Faith is also courageous. Following Jesus without question has its risks. It could cost you your life although that might seem foreign to us in America, where no one kills anyone for any reason other than simple reasons, right? But it will, without question, sometimes kill your reputation. And it takes a little bit of courage, as the Israelites risk practically being killed as they're walking around, because they could open the doors at any moment and come out. They are men of valor. They are warriors. But also takes courage in that they are probably being insulted. If the VeggieTales version is any close to what it probably was like, right? If you haven't seen that. Well, they're throwing insults down. That happens. So there's some reputation there being lost. I believe that it's easy to fight and it's easy to run, but it's really hard to follow God when he's told you not to do either one. It doesn't take courage to do whatever I want. That's easy. That's easy. What it does is take courage and faith to trust God with everything, to suffer for him, especially when everyone around me, even the whispers in my own mind, tell me I can't and I shouldn't. And Jesus willingly, okay, don't, don't picture Jesus, you know, with his ankles grabbed by the Roman soldiers, scratching his way, no, I don't want to go to the cross. He willingly went to the cross, courageously went to the cross, so that through me, I can, through him, I can suffer courageously. The third one is a silent faith. God tells the Israelites to not speak as they march until the end of the seventh day. For a week, not to speak as they march. So the only sound is the blowing of horns. And horns or trumpets uh, play an important role in Israel. And the first time you see it really... Uh, a significant role is when Exodus 19 and God comes down on top of the mountain in his presence and says his voice is like trumpets and it freaks them out and scares them because of the power and the 
um, uh, awesomeness of what's happening. And it signified, horns came up later in, in offerings for Israel and different uh, the festivals that they, they participated in. And they were to signify both the presence of God and the provision of God. And I think, truthfully, and maybe I'm only speaking for myself, that a lot of us follow God often very reluctantly. And we know that because we fill the air with so much complaint and whining as we are marching. Right? Okay. I'll do it your way. Okay? We're not really silent, but we're marching, arguing, debating, complaining. We might as well not be marching at all. In terms of faith, and really practically speaking, silence allows us to hear God's horn. And sometimes, quite frankly, we never shut up long enough to know and to hear that a trial in our life, a moment of suffering where you're looking like a fool, you're irritated or whatever, sometimes we never shut up long enough to hear that that actually is not sig signifying God's absence, but his presence if you would just be quiet and listen. The horns of God remind them as they're going. You, you, you just imagine them marching, like, burr, these guys got some lungs. Blowing horns continually, like, burr, and any moment there's silence and you don't hear the horns anymore, it's very easy to go, this is not what God, what did God want us to do? But no, the horns are constantly going. You remind them, God is here, God is present, God's going to take this thing down. All you need to do is be quiet. And you look at Jesus and you see a faith of a man who remains silent, trusting God as he was unjustly beaten, as he was mocked, as he was spit upon, as he was killed, so that I too can trust God when I'm unloved, when I'm suffering. And then finally, it's patient faith. Commander, do this seven times, and I know for me it'd be like, seven, can we just do it? Six, five, two, seven. Why seven? It seems like God makes a big point in Scripture to talk about the number seven. Um, in this case, we have seven priests, seven days, seven times on the seventh day. Uh, in the Hebrew, the word seven comes from uh, a word that means full or satisfied, to have enough. And it's, it's really first used in Genesis where God rests after creating the world, signifying this, this fullness and this completeness that he said is good and when men are created, very good. And in terms of creation, nothing could be added to it. It was, it was nothing that was absent from it. It could not be done better in a different way. That's important. It could not be done better. It was perfect in the eyes of God, who has quite a bit of knowledge of these things. So you look at this marching, and you just get to this place where God's timing, not yours, God's timing is perfect. And it's very tempting to want to stop on day two, on day three, or day five. But there's always a day seven. And your day seven might be 20 years. Your day seven might be a week. I don't know what it is, but God does. And it's to trust that God is perfectly in control, perfectly timing all things to come to the ultimate glory for himself and our true joy. Jesus, if you think about it, he lived for 33 years knowing a heck of a lot what was going to happen. He lived for 33 years. 
He was tempted for 40 days. He ministered for three years. He remained in a tomb dead for three days, patiently, patiently, faithfully, following God's perfect plan for the glory of God, so that I might do the same. But the truth is, we are sinful, messed up, broken people. All of us. And the sin in us works against a faith like this. More often, we avoid looking the fool at all costs because we are so concerned with men's approval. More often, we, we don't take risks, or at least only those that are safe, which, duh, are not risks at all. We never stop talking as we're walking, right? We're often complaining and whining even as we attempt to follow and we give up too easily or perhaps just too soon because God's results don't work on our timeline that we've created in our mind. That's not faith. And I say that again knowing I can't manufacture that in myself. And that's why we have the cross. Okay, so we get to a place, though, and we go, okay, fine, I'll follow. I will, I will play the fool for God. I will be uncomfortable. I will be patient. I'll even shut my mouth as I follow, as long as the walls fall down. Right? If the walls fall down, I'll do all those things. I'll wait, 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 okay. But the question is, that I've been sitting on this week, is will you follow after they fall? And I say that because marching around the, in this story, marching around the fortress is the easy part. This is where God does all the fighting. But the fight isn't over. It's just beginning. And the question is, when you actually actively have to fight, will you? And will you fight for total devotion to God? Check out verse 15, the seventh day says, on the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. That's next week. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord, and they shall go into the treasury of the Lord. And so the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown, and as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, the wall fell down flat, so the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. And that's the circle, they just all went up exactly where they're at. All the walls fell. Verse 21, the one we typically skip. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen and sheep and donkeys with the edge of the sword. That's a tough verse. Accepting the foolishness of, of the march was one thing, but now Joshua had been instructed to destroy the city completely. Now the destruction of, of this city and everyone in it is, is not some 
capricious cosmic deity just indiscriminately murdering anyone for fun. The story of Joshua is also not a prescription for some sort of a Christian jihad against all the bad sinners of which we are the good sinners or something. It had a specific purpose for a particular time when God was establishing his kingdom in a particular place in Israel. But I do think it does give us a picture of the kingdom that would one day be established in our own hearts by King Jesus. Now, Historically, if you want to read in Deuteronomy chapter 20, God gave uh, the rules of war to Moses. And there he gives very specific protocols of how you're supposed to battle or fight wars for those who are uh, cities that are in the promised land and those who are outside the promised land. And so for those cities that are far away, which gives us insight to later on when the Gibeonites come, and they're like, oh, we're from far away. Somehow they knew uh, you know, the rules, if you will. But for those cities that were far away and not in the promised land, they had a process. The priests would come forward in front of the people and they'd say, Hey, the Lord is with us, don't worry. The officers would then go and offer terms of peace to the city. And if they accepted, they would make them slaves and and workers in Israel. If they refused the terms of peace, those cities outside the promised land, then they would go to war and they would kill all the males. But they would spare everyone and everything else and take it as plunder. Animals, cattle, children, women, they would all become part. But God made a distinction. He said those cities that are nearby or those cities that are within the promised land, in Deuteronomy 20, verse 16, he says, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. But you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, as the Lord has commanded. Verse 18, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. This was commanded way prior to Jericho. But this is a real story with real people dying, and it's a disturbing one. But if you can, just for a moment, resist being governed by your emotions and the yuckiness of it. And instead see exactly how it pictures how serious God is about sin. Now... I know we, that we may cringe at the wrath that God, is, that God commands here, but the Bible teaches that God is holy and hates sin. You hate sin too. You just have difficulty hating your own. I struggle with the same thing. Okay? It's not that we don't hate sin, but when it comes, gets a little personal, then suddenly it's not that big a deal. God is holy and he hates sin. Now, as for Jericho, let me give you a picture. And all the Canaanites in this land, he had been very patient with his people. He told Abraham about how sinful they were way back in Genesis. And so for 400 years, he's been patient. And as God, meaning creator of all things, giver of all life, he had the right to destroy a rebellious people anytime he chose. He has that right being God. Now, though these people could have repented, 
with all these people could have turned towards God, they fully immersed themselves in their sin and ran after it with all energy and joy, so much so that in Leviticus 20, God himself describes the inhabitants, the current inhabitants of the land, saying that the land has vomited up its inhabitants. He describes them as puke, which is a pretty detestable thing. Okay, So this is how he feels about these people and sin in general. And archaeology has, has proven how grossly immoral this particular culture was with religious practices that included uh, all kinds of perverse sex worship, prostitution, incest, divination, and even human sacrifice. So the question is, do we really want a God who, who tolerates that kind of sin? And even an atheistic pagan will say, you know what, uh, human sacrifice, that's pretty bad. That's pretty horrible. And it is horrible. All those things are horrible. But the truth is this. Until we, you, I, us, begin to view our sin, and any sin, as horrible as that, you will never fully understand the holiness of God. We can't go, wow, that's really bad, and not join them inside Jericho. That's how God sees sin. He is holy, and he hates all of it. And so God instructs Joshua in this picture of holiness to cleanse the land completely. No survivors, no compromises, no impurities. Worship, worship must be pure. Pure devotion, all areas of life have to be cleansed that they might have a fulfillment of joy with the presence of God in all areas of their lives. And if you don't fully devote yourself to God here, you will, you will think that sin is something that can just be managed. You will think that it's something that, you know, kind of disappoints God, but really it's not that bad. And you won't get a step closer to understanding God's holiness or your need for salvation. I'm reminded by a, an illustration in a, in a novel by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. If you've not read it, you should. It has some theological things, but it's a great read. And the thing about it is um, people arrive in the beginning at this book, pictures it. And again, it's not intended to be a theological treatise on heaven. It's just a, a great picture. But they get on this bus, and what they have to do is um, they have to, in order to go to heaven, they have to leave behind the sin that separated them from God. Makes sense. But one guy in particular has real difficulty with this, and they picture him as this man with this like bird, I think it is, or animal perched on his shoulder. And they notice that he has these long claws, and it's grabbing onto him and scratching him and digging its nails in. And the angels ask um, permission for God to kill his sin, which is what this bird represents. And he can't let it go. It's cute. I mean, it's got the nails. And he's like, whoa, whoa, no. Um, kill it? No, it won't act up. It'll be okay. Um, it, it won't misbehave on the way. And they're like, no, let's, let's kill it. It's, it's actually hurting you. No, 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 no. I mean, it kind of bugs me, but let's just keep it there. And that's how we deal oftentimes with our sin. Making excuses, justifications. God says, 
very clearly in Joshua here and in Deuteronomy chapter 20, if you don't kill sin and idolatry completely, it will kill you and keep you from God. It will. And the thing about it is many will agree here that, that God is holy. Okay, I get that. God is holy and I can understand the image that God's making here of purity. But he certainly isn't loving. Because, I mean, these are real deaths that are occurring here. Um, and it just feels yucky. He can't be loving. A loving God wouldn't do that. Well, let me just say it very plainly. God is loving. He just loves himself first. He loves his holiness. He loves his perfection. He loves his glory before anything else. And that's exactly the kind of God that we want. Now, God really hates sin. He really kills those who in the end love their sin more than him. That's what the Bible teaches. And though like children will say, well, that's just not fair. I mean, I don't like that. Let me remind you, and I've said it before, the last thing that you and I want is a fair God. Because if we have a fair God who fairly gives us exactly what we deserve, you will die in your sin. But instead, we have a patient God, a merciful God, a forgiving and gracious God, whose patience does run out at some point because he is just and holy. God's judgment here with these people is the act of a just God justifiably enforcing his justice. That's what's happening. And allowing, think about this, allowing or tolerating sin is the most unloving thing God could do. Knowing what sin is, knowing how sin destroys. It is loving to warn his people of danger. It's loving to defend his people from harm. It's loving to destroy sin. And a lot of us, again, the emotionists will say, well, it's not loving to destroy innocent old or young people who are good. Maybe. And we forget Jesus' own words when he was approached and someone said, hey, good teacher. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. There's no one good. But one. God. In other words, newsflash, there are no innocent people. There are no innocent people. Do we understand that? There are only guilty people in the world. Included. Okay? I'm not talking like those guilty people out there, because I know some of you are thinking that. Yeah, I'm sure there's some guilty people in here. No, you and I are the guilty ones. We're all guilty before God. We are all sinful and broken and deserving of death. You can play the compare game all you want, but there is no Jericho and us. This is Jericho. It's God against the world. It's God whom we have to worship and beg for mercy. The question is, is not, it's not, is God worthy to be worshipped? The question is, 
Will you worship a God as he has revealed himself in all mystery, in all wrath, and in all love? Because if not, it's very unlikely that you will follow him in the way that he demands you to. The problem is we want to stand in judgment on the judge. The same problem that happened in the Garden of Eden. And it's not that you don't like what God is doing or what God is asking you to do. It's simply that you don't like God. That's what it comes down to. And that's what Romans 1 teaches us. But there's a beauty in the story. It's not just all God's justice. It's not all God's wrath because that is an incomplete God as well. If you go in verse 22... We know that God uses Israel to judge Jericho's sin, but again, he judges even Israel's sin. And Israel's not set apart. Let's just be careful. They're not set apart because they're like a little more lovable. Okay? Just read the Old Testament. You'll see how, how jacked up they are. Deuteronomy 7 tells us God says to them flat out, let me tell you why I chose you. It wasn't because you were beautiful or bigger or great. It was because I decided to set my love on you. That's it. Okay? Now, we still get to this place of like, well, gosh, uh, I guess the question isn't why does he kill people, but why doesn't he kill everyone? And it comes back to his love. The truth is there is no one but dirty, broken, evil, rebellious people, dare I say prostitutes, to save. That's all there is to save. Verse 22 says, bringing the story to completion, the two men who had spied out the Lord, I'm sorry, the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies, went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all of her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua, whose name means salvations of the Lord, saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. So in the middle of evil, terrible Jericho, in the, commun in the center of the community of rebellion, at the heart of sinfulness, there is hope and salvation. Rahab, the super great-grandmother of Jesus, according to Matthew chapter 1, takes us to a place of the cross. The story brings the wrath of God and the love of God together on the cross where Jesus died. And the same God in the Old Testament, catch this, the same God of the Old Testament who commands the destruction of Jericho and others for the purity of his people is the same God who sends his own son and commands his destruction for the purity of our hearts, the church. Same God. The love, grace, and mercy of God meets the holiness, wrath, and justice of God here on this man who really 
came to earth, who really lived a sinless life, who really did not deserve to die, but went to the cross in my place, taking what I deserved so that I might live. Joshua chapter 6 and the others that are going to follow is not intended for us to sit and debate on whether or not God is worthy to be followed. It is to lead us to see that the entire world is sinful and under the wrath of God, but that in love, Jesus takes all the wrath on himself that those who believe might live. So let's, I pray that we won't debate or apologize for God or about God or for the Bible, but instead we will repent and they will worship God who reveals himself as hating sin but loving, sinful men. And it's only when, I believe, we worship God as he's revealed himself in all of his mystery, in all of his justice and wrath and holiness and grace and love, that you will actually be able to follow him in the way he commands. Because you won't begin with the command anymore of evaluating whether or not the command's worthy to be followed. You will begin with God and say, he is worthy, so I'll do whatever. And when you come for communion, as we do, remember what you're declaring as you do. As you come and you take that bread representing Jesus' body that was broken from you, you are in fact declaring that you deserve to die. That you are as horrible as the horrible sinner that you think of that you deserve to die. But as you dip it in the blood that is representing Jesus' blood, you claim and declare that through him, because he died, I live. And that's the only reason. So in the, in the same moment you declare, I am more sinful than I would ever admit and broken, but I am more loved than I could possibly imagine. That is the gospel. And that is what we declare. And that is the God who we worship. Let's pray. Father God, you are holy and good and righteous and just. You are all-knowing. You are deserving of all of our worship, Lord. And yet I confess that I have often stood in judgment on you and your ways thinking I know better when all I really know is my sin. Holy Spirit, I pray you will convict us that not only you show us our own brokenness and our own sinfulness, you will show the beauty and the holiness that is Jesus that you give to us. I pray that through your word being proclaimed, through us singing as one voice, taking communion together as one family, Lord, you will be honored above all things. That we will not be, Father, governed by our emotions or our intellects or our experiences, but we will be governed by your word. To Jesus be the glory. In his name we pray. Amen. Romans 5, 6 through 11. For a while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. 
But God shows His love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore, having been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of the Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Go in the grace and blood of Jesus. Amen. See you.